It's a wedding psalm. And it is a very powerful expression of the prophetic word pertaining to Jesus Christ entering this world. It is a poetic expression of a prophetic truth. And so what you and I are going to find here is, in many ways, the richness of the Christmas season decorating these verses. You're going to see the Advent exploding with significance in these verses that they just read to us. And so, with this wedding song before us, let's pause as we look to our Lord in prayer, and we're going to ask God's wisdom as we think this through together. Now, our Father... As we come into your presence, we're so thankful for who you are. That in eternity past, you covenanted within the Godhead to send the second member of the Trinity into this world to die for our sins. We've inherited those sins from our original parents. We entered this world physically alive but spiritually dead. And what we needed was that one who perfectly engineered two natures in one person to enter via Bethlehem to die at Calvary to save us, Father, from the penalty of sin. And when we look into these verses that have been read to us, Our hearts are full, Father, with the way in which you would think of us. That you have us in mind as these thoughts were written. And we want, Father, our thoughts of you now, informed by your word, to honor you. So, Father, in these minutes together, as we explore your word and apply truth to life, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a long day when Marianne and I finally were able to sit down at my parents' dining room table. There had been oncology appointments in the earlier hours of the day, followed by lawyer appointments in the mid-afternoon into the latter parts of the day as durable power of attorney and other such matters were being formally established and wills updated. And so Marianne, who is an assistant principal of a regional school, teaches as well, And I sat down around 10.30 at night in my parents' home, and we had legal documents, and we had medical statements, and we had a host of other matters to begin working through. And, well, we had a lot of coffee in front of us. As we were working things through, Marianne's cell phone kept going off, and Sometimes it was a parent calling, wanting to talk about something at the school. Other times it was a teacher who wanted to talk about another matter at the school. And then she would put the phone down, and she was grading papers and looking at uh, other papers, the financials and such. And she looks at me, and she says, I multitask, you know. I'm a woman. 
just then my phone went off, not once, but twice, within a few minutes. I look at my little sister and say, I'm multitask, you know. I'm a man. (laughs) When we hear movement in the living room, and my parents have just made certain that Carol Ann, my Down syndrome sister, has uh, been tucked in for the night. Dad's about 90, and my mom, I won't say because she might be listening. But as they enter the living room, uh, my mom's got something in her hands, and she says, David, would you look at this? And lo and behold, it was their wedding album. And they sit down together, and with her arthritic hands, she begins to page through the album. Do you remember? Do you remember? They take each other's hands, you see, as they're looking at a particular page. Meanwhile, Marianne puts down whatever it is she was studying and looks at me with tears rolling down her cheeks and said, I can't concentrate. And I said, I don't know why you multitask, you know. And she looked at me as one of those little sisters typically do when they look at their older brother. And swallows hard. As she processes the pictures of that wedding. You and I are opening a wedding album in these verses. There are pictures here of that wedding. And these pictures are such that, well, the picture speaks a thousand words and then some with regard to what God wants to say to you and to me because this wedding is not a mere wedding. This is a royal wedding and has tremendous implications upon your life and mine as well. So what I want to do with you is to draw out two significant pictures with a few sub-points thrown in as well. And notice with me, first of all, that in verse 1 down to verse 9, this picture stands out such that the bridegroom here is a picture of God's Son. The bridegroom is a picture of God's Son that should appear on the screen. Now, notice with me that the Son of God is a major theme in these verses. And so this musician, who obviously had been composing music for this wedding, tells you and tells me that his heart is just simply overflowing. It overflows with a pleasing theme. Literally, a good word. So notice the source from which this is coming. It's from his heart, inscribed by the Holy Spirit. But also notice to whom he addresses this. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe, and the reader of the Old Testament allows for his mind or her mind to go back to the descriptions of Ezra 
in that book where he is described likewise as a scribe. Once he gets his composure, what this musician wants to do for you and wants to do for me is to begin to develop some personal distinctives of this royal bridegroom. Notice, for example, he begins to speak of him physically in verse 2. That you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Now, he would take us back in our thinking to that time when Israel had established a king by the name of Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, that was a descriptive of him. But not to be outdone, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 as well, in verse 12, there is a similar descriptive of David, Saul's successor, the one anointed, to be the one by which and from whom ultimately Messiah would come. So notice the physically involved descriptive here. You are the most handsome, but notice the phrasing of the sons of men. But furthermore, he moves from that physically oriented descriptive to one verbally as well, where he adds, and grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you and marked us forever. And as you've seen in your handout this morning, that takes you back to a promise that had been given to God via Nathan the likes to David in 2 Samuel 7 and again in, uh, in verse 13 and 16. That he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. And here now, this psalmist in verse 2 speaks of the fact that God has blessed you forever. This is no temporal king being described here. And our minds quickly move forward in this Advent season to that scene in the book of Matthew where Magi from the east appear at the doorstep of a king Herod, wanting to know where is he that is born king of the Jews. And then we make an immediate linkage, don't we, to that scene furthermore where an unbeliever by the name of Pilate has affixed over the cross of Jesus Christ, this statement, King of the Jews. And we connect these dots and we ponder disciples examining an empty tomb, and they realize this is no temporal one, this is an eternal one, and now what God is doing is validating poetically and at the same time prophetically what is being stated here on verse 2. God has blessed you forever. 
not to be outdone, not only is the descriptive that of one which physically and verbally, but also militarily affirmed. Well, in verse 3, he says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. And now our thought processes are fast-forwarded to the book of Revelation because what the psalmist is doing, what we need to do likewise in the Advent season is to connect all these dots and not just focus exclusively on Bethlehem, to the exclusion of the overarching plan of the sovereign God from eternity past. In your majesty, in verse 4, ride out victoriously. And Revelation 19 jumps out of these verses. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Shades of Armageddon. The peoples fall under you. During one of the crusades, Philip Auguste, king of France, before he went into one of his battles, took off his crown, set it on a table. Its inscription was, To the Most Worthy. He made his speech to his military leaders, and he asked that all of them forget that he was their king temporarily, and simply consider that the crown which he had laid aside in battle would be the prize of the one who carried himself most nobly in the war and contributed most to victory. As they entered into the battle and then returned victorious, everybody, the military leaders, gathered together, and one of the nobles, stepping forward, took the crown, made his movement toward the monarch, placed it back on his head, and said, Thou art king, are the most worthy. Physically, verbally, militarily, Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and majesty, and your majesty ride out victoriously. And now we project ahead through Bethlehem onto Calvary, beyond Calvary to Easter, on ahead, ascension, likewise return for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. And then that ultimate day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The peoples, the peoples fall under you. But now you've harnessed these major personal distinctives, physically, verbally, militarily. But starting in verse 6 down to verse 9, notice with me the royal distinctives, and there are going to be two significant distinctives I want to draw out for you. It will appear on the screen. Note first of all with me the identity of the bridegroom. Verse 6. Your throne, O God. Did you see that? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice he says, O God. 
Yet in verse 2, you notice that this comes from one of the sons of men. When you combine verse 2 and verse 6, what you have done is spotted both deity and humanity connecting 6 and 2 in this one person, two natures in one person on this throne. And this throne, O God, is forever and ever. As magi from the east come looking for the one who is to be born king of the Jews, as a pilot transfixed upon a cross, king of the Jews. But notice that the grave even is empty in this verse because your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then ends. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And twice the word scepter is used, taking you back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 12, which speaks of the scepter which was to come from the tribe of Judah. This is one on his throne. There was a king of the past named Charlemagne, and when he died and was placed in his grave, the crown was placed upon his head, and a scepter was put in his bloodless fingers. He was dead. But this was a denial of reality. We have a denial of reality in this world, What we have is one born in Bethlehem who died on Calvary, raised on that third day, ascended, and will return. And now, here you and I find is a poetic expression of a prophetic truth. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. As some cult members come at my door, among other things, want to argue that Jesus Christ is simply human only. How do you respond to that? Notice not only the identity of the bridegroom, notice also furthermore with me the authority of the bridegroom in verse 6 and verse 7. Why the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. It doesn't say loved righteousness to the exclusion of hating wickedness. And it doesn't say hated wickedness to the exclusion of loving righteousness. It holds them together. He is so balanced. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you which references the baptism of Jesus Christ, where in Luke chapter 4, there would be this voice from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We are looking at the royal bridegroom. This is a picture of God's Son with personal distinctives in 2 through 5, with royal distinctives in 6 through 9 where his 
identity is such that he is both human and divine, two natures, one person. But furthermore, the authority is there because the scepter, not once but twice, is emphasized in all of this. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what do we say to the individuals who appear at my door? Notice how Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, which appears on the screen, speak, because what you want is Scripture to speak to the heart of people. Quoting now from Hebrews, or rather Psalm 45, the writer of the Hebrews who wants to emphasize to these Jewish believers the messianic claims and credentials of Jesus Christ, says, but of the Son, he says, God's Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you and I are awed here because we see the dynasty of the bridegroom being spilled out before our very eyes. Where poetically in verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And we consider the irony of Jesus Christ's robes being divvied up among some soldiers on that cross, mocking the one by having already put him in purple as supposedly in their estimation. as they put a scepter in his hand, not realizing that three days later this royal king would have an eternal kingdom and the scepter is forever. So those robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia and from ivory palaces stringed instruments. You can almost sense the wedding musicians positioning themselves make you glad as the daughters of the kings are among your ladies of honor, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold. There's your bridegroom. It's the Son of God here. And now we understand why two natures in one person, Bethlehem and one and more, looking for a king. But what about that bride? Takes two, you know, make a wedding. Well, down in verse 10 through verse 15, here is your second significant picture. Notice with me that the royal bride is a picture of God's people. In verse 10, notice what it says. Hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear. It carries with the idea of somebody who's leaning in to the voice of another person who's speaking, reminding us of how Solomon proverbially had communicated wisdom, such as in Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, and now shades of Ruth. Forget your people. And your father's house. 
And we think of Ruth, who was to be of that genealogy that leads towards David, which leads towards that one who is the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. And now we are thinking of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, and his people who love him as Lord and as Savior. In the musical, The King and I, there's that tense relationship, you know, between the king and Anna. Finally, he gets so exasperated, he looks at her and says, you are a very difficult woman. And Anna responds, perhaps so, your majesty. And I'm sure Jesus Christ on his throne looks at his ones who put faith and trust in him through generations and say, you are one very difficult bride, but we're sinful. And the bridegroom loves you. He came to die for you, you know. And the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. And I look at these words, and here's the first of two Unique distinctives. Note with me the preparation of the bride. Incline your ear. Forget your people, like Ruth, who forsakes the false gods of her land, the Moabites, and embraces the one who promised Messiah to come into this world, die for our sins. And like all who every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, accepts what's said here in verse 11, since he is your Lord, bow to him. And here is the romance of redemption on your hands, you see. It happened after one of the services a few years back on a Sunday morning. Um, there was a young lady that approached me and with her fiancé, and they were looking forward to getting married pretty soon, and so she had this big smile on her face, and she said, You've been around a few years, which made me feel old. And she said, do you have any recommendations on any romantic movies um, that we can enjoy spending time watching together? And I said, well, I've got my John Wayne collection at home. Maybe there's something there you might like. And she rolled her eyes back, and she looked at me. And then she said, I should have asked another pastor. And I said, well, Pastor James knows something about romantic movies. Why don't you go ask him? I'll miss him. This is the romance of redemption here. And what you and I find is that the bride and the bridegroom are... Finding a oneness. And notice with me in this wedding album, not only the preparations of the bride in verse 10 through 12, but notice furthermore with me the presentation of the bride in verse 13 through 15. 
All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king. She's coming down the aisle. As you're thinking of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom now, and his people, the bride. With her virgin companions following behind her, and with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And now the richness of the symbolism of this wedding unfolds before us. Another scene of a few years ago. Very unique, unique 72-hour period. Where this senior pastor had a funeral in a morning and a wedding in the afternoon. Followed by speaking four times on a Sunday in those typical 14-hour Mondays. And so I remember after the wedding of the afternoon, taking a step back, and I had a cup of coffee in my hand. It's one of God's gifts, you see, to us. And I'm just taking in all the emotions of humanity. When I spot off to the side that there is a family sitting around a table and Somehow, someway, they had been in both gatherings on that Saturday. And here was a father mentoring the children, and his wife was adding perspective and comment. He had noted that in the wedding that I had spoken and taught from Ephesians chapter 5. Wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And he had picked up on the teachings, the richness of this passage, that within the Godhead there is both spiritual equality and practical authority. Jesus Christ is the spiritual equal to God the Father. Spiritual equality. But with spiritual equality is practical authority where the Father sent the Son to this world and the Son came to do the will of the Father. And we built a bridge into the marital relationship of explaining then the spiritual equality and the practical authority within the marital relationship but kept bringing it back to the cross of Jesus Christ in that teaching in the wedding. And lo and behold, what I found was in very profound and yet personal tones. This father was explaining these things to his children and asking them, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, and linking all of this to the bride and the bridegroom. That's powerful. That's wise. That's what believers ought to be doing. Which brings us then to the wedding pictures worth sharing in verse 16 and 17. Because here it reads, In place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So look carefully with me as we draw out two wedding pictures here worth sharing. 
similar to what that father and mother did with their children as they allowed for the scriptural wedding book, the album, to be opened up and the explanation of salvation being applied. Because first, these pictures need to be shared generationally. Where in verse 17, I'll cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Do you see that? So there's your first picture worth sharing. These pictures need to be shared generationally. But not only generationally. Did you notice how it all ends in verse 17? Therefore nations will praise you. Did you mark this? Forever and ever. Which takes you back to the promise that was given to David. Which links itself to the one known as the son of David. Which takes you to the one who is born king of the Jews. Which takes you to the one who died with a sign over him that said king of the Jews which leads you to an empty grave, which leads to an ascension where one is seated on the right hand of the Father. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 6. Therefore, in verse 17, nations will praise you how, when, where, forever and ever. And you've connected the dots. Because, secondly, these pictures need to be shared internationally. Internationally. Everybody needs to know this. This is the forever wedding, you know. And so my multitasking younger sister looks at me, and she's got tears in her eyes. And I smile at her, and I say, let's go in the living room. And so she sits down next to my mom, and I sit down next to my dad. And she puts her arm around my mother, and I put my arm around my father. They're holding hands. And as we look at this wedding album, I'm looking far beyond this wedding album. I'm thinking of the great bridegroom and the royal bride and the ultimate relationship of Jesus to you and me. Let's stand together. My Father, I praise you and I thank you for who you are. We praise you and thank you for how you work and how you will use pictures and symbols and illustrations and ceremonies But it's up to the people who love Jesus and invest time in your word to explain all this. To help people to understand all this. And to share the good news of the one who came to die for our sins. The bridegroom loves her enough to be willing to die for her. The bride loves him enough to be willing to live for him. And we thank you, Father, for that kind of love. So help us to be able in this Advent season to open up the wedding album of Jesus.
and share the good news of Jesus to everyone who's willing to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.